I came up a little bit early because I just wanted to be on the stage with these guys. They are so good. They are so talented. And thank you for what you do. It's just pretty high caliber stuff up here. There's so much talent, but also just the work ethic and emotion in it. And I really appreciate them creating that space for us week after week. Thank you for that. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. Once in a while, you and I, we come across somebody that just doesn't make sense to us. You know, maybe we walk by them the first time, but you kind of do a double take and you kind of scratch your head and you find yourself pondering like, how does this person make it work? You know, where's their source of power? What's their logic? You know, what's their end game? And Carla Kepler is one of those people. I just don't understand how she is Carla so consistently and chooses to be such a servant and give and love and be there. The stories about Carla reach my ears all the time. And I'm so thankful that I get to introduce her today. A little longer intro than usual because she totally deserves it. Carla, come on up. Tell us your story. And uh, let me just say, at the end, she's going to put a plug in for our care team ministry. But that word plug doesn't even make sense because this is who she is. It's not a plug for a ministry. It's just her way of serving and connecting with us. So, Carla, thank you. Good morning. My name is Carla Kepler, and I've been a part of our church family since 1999. I arrived at Mercer Island Covenant with um, a toddler and a preschooler, Richard the preschooler, Katie the toddler, and I was so grateful to hand over, especially Katie, to the nursery. She's one of those kids. And um, Sharon Horn took her and forever will be a part of my heart. Um, And I got to walk into the sanctuary to sing and to worship with you all. And I've been blessed and grateful to be a part of this church family in so many ways. A few of you know, very few of you know, that our two children were born via a surrogate in Portland, Oregon. After many years of infertility, three miscarriages, six surgeries, and that's a story in itself, and I wouldn't be one bit surprised if there was more of you right here in this room. Our surrogate had two children with her husband, and I tried to maintain contact after our second child was born, and except uh, we were really busy with our families, and except for milestones such as high school graduation announcements, there was very little. About two years ago, she contacted me to say that her daughter had moved to Seattle and would like to meet me. We arranged to meet in a Starbucks, of course, in Tukwila and talked for an hour or so. She shared with me that the relationship between her and her mother had been difficult in the past few years. They had not spoken nor seen one another for a while. We hugged and promised to meet again. And then she asked if I would like to attend a roller derby event in Shoreline where she both skated and coached a team. Roller derby. (laughs) Didn't feel like me, quite. Deep breath, of course. The next Saturday found me sitting on hard bleachers with my son Richard at the Rat's Nest Roller Derby Event Center. 
in Shoreline. Everybody around me looked pretty normal, uh, moms and dads and grandparents, wannabe skaters. My son met her and I met her partner. After years of being a soccer mom, lacrosse mom, volleyball mom, and even at gun range mom, when my daughter wanted to learn how to shoot handguns, this was a new one. I could knit between matches, so I thought it was all good. Over the next several months, I attended more roller derby events. We texted and emailed and had her and her partner for dinner several times. They shared they were planning to be married. On January 20th of this year, she called me, sobbing, to tell me that she had just found out her mother had died unexpectedly after a two-week illness that she didn't even know about. After we talked for a while, and I'm praying, help me, Lord, to know what to say, I made sure her partner was there, and we hung up. I prayed for her, texted often, and she began doing the things that no 25-year-old should ever have to do for her mom, arranging for cremation, closing bank accounts, etc. On February 16th, she invited me to brunch with her bridesmaids, followed by an appointment at a neighborhood bridal shop to select a wedding dress. Privately, I asked how she was, and she said today was going to be a happy day in the midst of her pain, and she really wanted to do this. Watching her try on dresses, laugh with her friends, be kind to the assistant, big thing with me, left me in tears. Then she emerged in the dress. Simple lines, no fluff, the only decoration was a row of buttons down the back. And wearing her necklace that contained a few grains of her mother's ashes. More tears and photos. The assistant handed us each a glass of white wine and took pictures, more tears. As I've gotten older and the children are no longer children, I struggled with my purpose. Now, not so much. I have a purpose. It's being where he puts me. It's being his hands and feet. It's leaving the sadness and the regret and anger behind, and it's finding the joy. Will she ever share my faith? Will she ever know the comfort and assurance of knowing our Lord? What she does know is that her mother gave me the gifts of my children, Richard and Katie, changing the way I see life and purpose and our God. And she can count on me, and I'm honored to be there. Thank you for listening to my story. Now I have to pull an advertisement. The care team needs you. And some of you know that we do meals in times of celebrations and in times of grief. We help with memorials, we set up 
tables, we make cookies. You don't have to be perfect, but you'll get better. You make coffee and punch, serve and clean up, and that's how we show our love to the families and the friends. You might even learn the secrets of making coffee into an air pot and using our massive commercial dishwasher. And we also visit in hospitals and homes. But you do what you're drawn to. So I'll be in the lobby after church and we can talk and you can join the care team and do what brings you joy. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Revelation. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 12, verses 1 to 12 from the New International Version. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. The title of the sermon today is Demons, Vampires, and Angels. And uh, the first thing I kind of want to talk about uh, to say before we talk about demons and vampires and angels uh, is that I want to acknowledge that this topic is a little bit, and this is one way of saying it, is a bit above our pay grade. 
And what I mean by that is it's not less important if something is above our pay grade. It means maybe it's even more important. But we have insufficient ability and knowledge and possibly uh, reason to know what we need to know to fully grasp it. And so we should really be careful and be humble about the way we approach this topic. I would say that understanding uh, church history Human beings and human nature has not done well particularly with this topic and we've sort of abused its knowledge and used it for our good. We've been almost demonic in the way we have dealt with demonology in the church. And so uh, because of that, I want to acknowledge that this is very, uh, uh, you know, insufficient information, but I think there's enough information here and we have what we need to know about it. And so we're going to learn some of that today. The main, the main thing that we have to start with when we're talking about demons is their engine. Demons, we learn from Scripture, they have one basic purpose in the world. This is why they exist. This is who they are, and this is what they're about. Demons are all about destruction. They seek to destroy. And there's no other end beyond that. They want to destroy. It kind of reminds me of the Dark Knight. Batman's trying to understand why the Joker is the Joker. Why does Joker keep doing Joker things? And uh, Alfred reminds him, you know, some people just want to see the world burn. There is no other why. There is no other gain. That's it. The whole show is about destruction. And I kind of thought about that for a while, and I realized this has to be true because the most foundational, the most primary aspect of who God is is that he is to us our creator. God creates. Yes, God is love, but when he loves, the end result of love is creation. Yes, God is Jehovah Jireh, a provider, and when he provides, the end result of provision is sustaining creation. The tone setter, the main truth, the dynamic between God and his everything else is that God is the source. He is the creator. He is from him and through him and to him are all things. He is king. He is Lord. This is the most basic theology you need to have if you want to understand God, the creator. And so the opposite of that is Satan, the destroyer. Okay, that's the first thing I want you to understand. And the way he gets there, his primary strategy is by using, according to scripture, these are the three big categories we have. Satan uses lies, accusations, and theft, or thievery, or robbery, or stealing. These are some of the words that's used in Scripture. Basically, lies, accusations, and theft to achieve the penultimate result of division. So that, through division, he accomplishes destruction. Lies, accusations, and theft so that he can divide, so that he can destroy. And there's no more so that after that. That's it. 
to oppose God means to oppose the creator by destroying. And we're going to learn later that the way you and I are made susceptible to his schemes, the lies, the accusations, and theft, so that we are divided, so that we are destroyed, is through our points of pain. Where you are hurting is where Satan will meet you. Now, that's kind of a pretty big statement I just made. But think about it for a second. You are susceptible to accusations, lies, and thievery, and division, ultimately destruction, because originally you were hurting. So let's take some world examples. What about gangs? What is the recruiting tactic of gangs? Gangs recruit by meeting individuals, potential members of gangs, at the places where they are hurting. If you are not hurting, chances are you are not vulnerable or susceptible to joining a gang. What about crime? You and I have, all of us in this room, have been tempted to commit crimes or have committed crimes. And I would venture to say that the point at which you were most vulnerable to committing crimes is where you were hurting, where you had a need. So, you know, psychologists and sociologists will tell you all criminals at some point, in, if, you, if you think about why they commit the crimes they commit, they believe they deserve the thing they were stealing because there was some area, some way they feel deprived and they were injustice and wronged in some way, so they deserve it. They should take it. It really belongs to them in the first place. That is a pain point. Think about then your addictions. How are we made vulnerable to addictions? Well, an addiction starts out as a coping mechanism for some unresolved pain in our lives. And then we become dependent on that mechanism itself, and then we never get to actually address the original pain point. We are locked in by the pain, and then the mechanism, and then this dependency on the mechanism itself that keeps us from addressing the pain point. That's what addiction is. All of it starts because you were hurting in the first place. And so when we look out at the world and into our own lives, we see that pain is the point at which we are made vulnerable to illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs, which is my definition for sin. Now, you think further than that, you realize, actually, this is true of all areas of how we live life. Love. We experience love at its greatest, most beautiful, most pleasurable, where we have need or pain. When somebody offers to resolve that pain or meet that need, we experience love. And so not only is, 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 uh, does pain make us vulnerable to demonic activity, it also makes us susceptible and open to divine activity. What about vocation? Many of us, if not most of us, are actually working out our own personal pain issues through our vocation. 
Do you know that if you talk to a psychologist, for example, a therapist, chances are they were first interested in the topic in the first place, or they had insight about the psychology of human beings because they were trying to work out their own stuff. Talk to pastors. Why was I interested in theology? Because I really needed to resolve how the world works. Right? What about... Uh, marathon runners. Do you know that people who engage in endurance sports or extreme ultra kind of sports, most of them have trauma in their life. It's the pain that they're drawing from, in fact, that allows them to accomplish these amazing feats. You can Google that. That's for sure. In fact, I would say that our primary point of connection to the world and to each other is through pain. Your pain. Places where you're hurting. That's from where we interact with the world. Your pain is the arena. It's the spot. It's the place where life and death swirl together. And where you are hurting, there's opportunity for death and life, for good and for evil, for light and darkness, for addiction and freedom, for crime and virtue. All of us in here and out there, we have pain. And there are evil forces at work seeking to accuse and use lies to destroy. One book I would recommend at this point and I thought about this, and I think this is a, a good one to start with. If you are sort of unfamiliar and want to read about this, uh, there's a, a really famous Christian author who wrote one of the most popular books uh, in any category. Uh, is a man, a psych- psychiatrist named M. Scott Peck. He wrote a famous book called The Road Less Traveled. And when he started writing that book, he was a Buddhist. By the middle of the book, he had converted himself to becoming a Christian. And by the end of the book, he's a Christian. And then he went on to become a Christian author and speaker. And one of the books he wrote as a man of faith is a book uh, about demons called Glimpses of the Devil. And uh, it's a fascinating look because it's through the lens of a practicing psychiatrist. So he's this sort of young Christian that's grappling with the scriptures and also very much embedded in psychiatric thinking and framework. And so it's a, a way to understand this. But he believes he's had three encounters with demons, and one of them, he believes, was Satan himself uh, through his practice. And so he sort of spells out his experience and provides his theories on this. If you're interested, that's an interesting one. We learn from verse 12 that uh, these evil forces at work never, ever want to stop. And so there's always a need to battle the enemy. And so what I'm hoping Uh, The value of the sermon is that you won't just fight each other because that's a mistake. But we will know the enemy, identify the enemy, and fight the enemy so that we can together defeat the enemy. Okay? First, we start with demonology or the study of demons. This is not everything. This is not exhaustive. But this chapter does give us some really helpful insights about demons and Satan and how they operate. We start with verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. 
the main thing I want you to take away from this is that there is such a thing as evil personified. Evil isn't like electricity. It's not just a force. It's not some cloud that's darker than the others. It's a real personality. It's a conscious being. It really does exist. And for some reason, John describes, depicts this creature as, and I said creature because he's created, as having seven heads, it's red, and it's got ten horns. I was like, where are those ten horns? How does ten fit on seven? You know, and is it on its head at all? Maybe it's on its back, but then there wouldn't be a horn. It'd be like a spine situation. Anyway, my imagination took me there. Uh, I want to encourage you to not focus on decrypting the horns and the heads and the crowns and all that or the 1260 days. I think it's a mistake and it's a waste of your time to do that. For some reason, these details are mentioned. I think the details add some validity to the truthfulness of these uh, teachings, but there is not enough information in the book There is not enough wisdom in your head to try to solve this. And it takes you down pathways that I don't believe are edifying. And so just be attentive to the things that I think God is really saying to you to help you defeat the enemy. And I don't think you need to understand why it has seven heads to defeat the enemy. Just got to cut all the heads off. Right? I'm going to tell you uh, two stories. I, uh, I think I have about five or six stories. I may be forgetting one or two, uh, but these two stories simply illustrate the fact that I personally have come to a place where I believe in the existence and the activity of evil personified, that is, demonic activity. Okay? And I don't know how to reconcile it in the light of day, you know, sitting with you here. It's just like normal. It's just reality, right? We shop, we eat, we sleep, and then we have these stories. I don't know what to do with them, but here they are. Number one, I was planting uh, my first covenant church uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, called High Rock Covenant Church, and I was in the throes of it. It was right at the beginning. I was really scared. I was panicking all the time. I was super young, and I did not know what I was doing, and I would say that everybody was scared. None of us knew what we were doing spiritually intense, and I felt invited into a season of fasting and prayer. I was waking up at 5 o'clock every morning and praying, and I was fasting. Um, And in the middle of one of these nights, I was awakened by a voice that said to me, Peter, get up and pray. Now, I say I heard because I heard it, but I could also say I felt it. And I don't know if I heard it or if I felt it, but it was something like that. And I shot up, and I remember sitting in bed. I put my hand on Susie, who was still sleeping next to me. I tried to wake her up. She wouldn't wake up. And then right in front of me, I saw what I believe was a demon. The room was dark, but this creature was darker still. And then its eyes were even darker still. And I don't know how I know this, but you know how you know things sometimes without things being verbally communicated to you? It's like this extra sense that sort of, Uh, activates, and I saw and I knew to the depth of my core that this creature in front of me was a demon, and it was staring at me through the blackest of eyes, and I knew that it hated me. It just was 
filled with hatred. In fact, hatred was all it was. And I knew that it just wanted to destroy me and wanted to see me destroyed. I knew it. And I felt this fear grip me. And then I heard or felt this voice say again, Peter, pray. And so I, I don't know why I pray this. I think uh, if I think about it, I think it was from like a Frank Peretti novel from years ago. Anybody remember Frank Peretti novels? This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness were the two titles that I read. And uh, there was this line in one of the books that said, the Lord rebuke you. And I know that's in scripture, you know, but I, also, I think I remembered it from the Prairie novels. And that's what I said. I said, the Lord rebuke you. And I said it like maybe three or five times. And then it just it shrank away, disappeared. And then I tried to wake up Susie. She kind of woke up and I told her the story. And she said, I think she kind of remembered, has some vague memory of it. But she didn't really wake up. Where was she when I needed her most? I don't know. <laughs> but that's story number one. And then story number two I was invited to speak at this multi-day conference. And the first day I get there, and it was before dinner, before the whole thing had started, after dinner. And a team of leaders from that group, they uh, came to me and they said, we have this woman, and we were hoping she wouldn't come to this conference, but she's here. And we want you to know she has been known to uh, manifest uh, demons when during like worship services and sermons and things, and we were really hoping she wouldn't come, but she's here, and we're afraid she's going to do that and ruin everything, so could you help us out? <laughs> what? Right? And so I uh, didn't know what I was doing, but I said what pastors are supposed to say, and I said, let's pray. And so I had them bring her, and uh, maybe two or three of them, and her and I, we sort of sat there, and uh, we were praying. And I don't know how this happened. I don't know how to explain it to you. But I started seeing things about her and her life, I guess. And then so I started asking her, I'm seeing this. What does this mean? And we started talking about, and I mean praying and talking about uh, the pain points in her life. And she had these areas of trauma, pain, that caused her to believe lies about herself and about the world and primarily about God. And so we were able to go to, in, in prayer, go to her places of trauma, identify the lies as lies, we named it, and then we dispelled it, and then we replaced it with a truth in its place. And then we did this for a while, and I opened my eyes, and uh, when I did, I learned that it was about 90 minutes had gone by. And she was of sound mind, and she was doing great. And the whole conference, she never manifested at all. So such a thing as evil personified. Okay, come back now. Verse 4a. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And what this tells me for you numbers people is that there are two demons for every, uh, I mean, sorry, two angels for every demon. Okay, do the math. If there's a third of the angels fell with Lucifer, that means there are two-thirds left, and two-thirds is 2x, one-third. 
One way I make sense of it is that the Bible names three sort of generals among the angels, and it's Satan, Michael, and Gabriel. And so Satan takes one-third, which is probably his angels, and then Michael stays true to God, and Gabriel stays true to God, and so they got their angels. So that's one of my explanations for that. And so that, I mentioned this just as a comfort to you. If you are afraid of demons, fear not. There's two for every one. Verse 4b, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child from the moment he was born. Devour, destroy from the moment he was born. Look at what Satan is doing, waiting, stood in front of the woman. This is the only MO, modus operandi, of demons. All they want to do is to destroy. Their end is destruction. This is their only appetite, their only impulse, their end game. And then verse 12 tells us they want to do this forever and ever. That Satan is angry because he knows his time is limited. He doesn't want it to end because this is all he knows. And as long as he could keep destroying, he can keep destroying forever. It means his existence is one and the same as destroying. And then we have verse 2. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. This is another hint at where we are made vulnerable to demonic activity. It's where we are in pain, where we are hurting. Pain is the entranceway for demonic influence and activity in the world. Pain is what destroys hearts and minds and makes us susceptible to the schemes of the evil one. Pay attention to your pain. Pain precedes sin. Pain precedes demonic influence. Whenever you are feeling something like pain, pause, slow things down. Try not to speak. Try not to spread whatever anxiety you are feeling. Pain makes us really, really vulnerable. And then verse 9 leads the whole world astray. And then verse 10, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. There is never a ceasing to demonic activity. So there is a constant, constant encouragement in scriptures for us to stay alert stay watch in the day stay watch in the night because the activity is real now i want to talk about the struggle ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us this for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I highlighted a key word for us, and I'm not sure you've, if you've thought about this as a key word. It's the word places. 
Now, this is one translation. If you do a parallel translation study, you will see that all the translations use all different words for this word place because this word place actually doesn't exist in the passage itself. The, the translators felt that we need to put a word in to talk about this idea because if you just stop at of evil in the heavenly, it doesn't make sense. The word is really more like the idea, I should say, is more like realm or arena. And to me, this is important because when we read a passage like this and we think about demonic activity, we tend to think it's sort of out there. We tend to pray against things outside. It's external. It's above. But what we understand from the whole of Scripture is that the battle isn't out there. The arena in which the battle takes place is in the human heart. It's for the human soul, and it's in the human mind. The battle isn't over there, but the battle is for your motives, your intent, your agendas, your lesser gods and idols. The battle turns, is defined by fought and won or lost on the inside, your inside. So yes, we battle against, not against flesh and blood, against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers. Where? In your heart. In your heart. That's where the battle is. And I know and acknowledge that this is an awfully inconvenient truth. Because I really want the fault and the reality that's bad to be out there somewhere. You know? Is it really about me? Is it about my heart? Is it about who I am? About my character and my mind? See, you and I, we sort of grasp when we're hurting at the first available solution, whether it's a false solution or not, we sort of grab at it and we latch onto narratives that make us the victim or the hero. We triangle in the outside so that we don't have to actually deal with our inner demons. We don't want to contend with our own demons. We want to contend with the demons that are supposedly out there, but not our own. And whenever we do that, we act like demons. We use lies and accusations. And we are creating division, ultimately, which seek to destroy. And we may not realize we're doing that. We are participating in demonic activity when we do that. And it's not because we are evil. But it's because we have pain in our life. And it's an illegitimate way of trying to deal with the pain. Where you are hurting is where the battle is. Politics, let's think about politics for a second. You know, you think it's sort of this big, complicated thing that's happening in our government. It's not. It's just individuals like you and me, just little kids with broken hearts, wielding swords that are so big it's hurting so many people. And I'm not just talking about the U.S. government. There are so many governments in chaos and turmoil on the balance right now. It's little kids with bruised lives making decisions 
that are impacting people? What about parenting? You know, if you're a kid, when you were a kid, you thought parents were these big, all-knowing things. No. If you're a parent, you know you're just a kid. You know you're just hurting on the inside. And you live out of your pain. You don't know how to legitimately deal with it. So it comes out in self-justification and illegitimate ways. Bosses and managers and skip levels, all little kids in pain, wielding power. So the appropriate action to battle spiritually is to go to God and go to each other humbly in prayer, not for somebody else, but for yourself. It's so easy to try to blame everything and everyone else and so perpetuate the battle instead of fighting the battle. Know your enemy. Know where the fight is. Show up where the fight is. Remember Jesus said, Peter, what are you doing? Put your sword away. Peter mistaken the enemy. He didn't know what the enemy was. And what did Jesus say? Peter, it's you who have something in you that wants to live by the sword. And by that sword, you will die. Because the battle you need to see and fight is inside of you, Peter. Stand behind me, Satan, Jesus said to Peter. You keep thinking the enemy is out there. No, the enemy is fighting for your soul. Remember, Jesus said that. This night, Satan has been bargaining with me for your souls. Demons seek to destroy. And the destruction of others often feels like salve to your own pain. But it's not. It's a false trail. Don't go down that path. You know, our um, culture knows the presence of evil. That's why we can't, we can't shake these uh, narratives that keep popping up in books in Hollywood. You know, there's this one show that I'm kind of fascinated by these days. Uh, and the show is framed around uh, the vampire motif. And there are three different kinds of vampires in this show. And it's really a social commentary. It's not about vampires at all. Unless it's about society and society has vampires in it which is their point. They have three kinds of vampires. There's vampires that literally seek to destroy by sucking on people's blood, yes, and they want to convert others to become vampires. That's one area. But they also have an energy vampire, which is so funny, so fun. And energy vampires are people who talk to you ad nauseum, and they bore you to, bore you to death with details that you're not asking for, and then you feel your energy level going down, and their eyes start lighting up because they're feeding off your energy. And then they have another category of vampires who are emotional vampires. And their MO is to always be the victim. Every time they interact with you, they have some sob story, some woe is me story. And then you have to feel pity for them. And then they take your emotions. And you feel emotionally depleted and they get energized and their eyes start glowing. But the point that I want to make is it doesn't take a lot for us to be engaged in demonic activity. I'm going to give you a really helpful pro tip here on how you can know when you yourself are engaged in demonic activity. Ready? When you find yourself demonizing other people, you are being demonic yourself. On the other hand, angels are ministering spirits. They don't want to take your blood they don't want to take your energy or your emotional energy. 
They want to give. Ministering's, to minister means to give, and they're seeking to give. And so this is what we understand about salvation. Verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Salvation comes through pain as well. And through pain, salvation is going to be formed in you. The image of Christ is going to be formed in you through pain. Not in avoidance of pain, but through pain, by embracing pain. As you contend with your pain points, as you contend with your demons, it's going to be, it's going to ex be experienced by you as a birthing process. Through pain and blood, salvation, Christ himself will be formed in you. And that will be your salvation. How do I know this? Because verse 11, what does it say? They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. And it should be period. But it's not. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the, test, by the word of their testimony. The blood of Christ is activated by the work of Christ in you. It's the blood of Jesus and your testimony together that will defeat the schemes of the evil one. You want to triumph over demons in your life? Yes, cling to the blood of the cross. But yes, internalize it and you yourself be saved so that you have a testimony of the blood of Christ in your life. This is what salvation is made of. Salvation is not saving the world out there. Because the world out there is just billions of little yous out there contending with their own demons, with demons playing in the arena of their hearts, individual hearts. So dial down how much you focus on others and other things and shift focus to your own character, your own faith, your own habits and desires and longings and practices and your own reaction over their action and your action over their reaction. This is the call of God for you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And getting into this mode of living is what salvation looks and feels like if you are a follower of Christ. And so we have verse 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm going to just, I didn't do this the first service, but I thought about this uh, in between services. Uh, fathers, in general, this is a stereotype, but in general, you are really good at contending with the forces out there. But you're often so avoidant and scared of dealing with your inner demons. May you be an example, not just of the battles you're able to fight externally, but your exercising of demons on the inside of you as well. By the blood of Christ and by the word of your testimony. Let's end with one more clip, lest we forget our grandfathers. 
Good job, everyone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for these dads and granddads and great-granddads, these angels in our lives who have been ministering spirits to us with their amazing reflexes. We thank you for the way, God, that you reveal yourself as a father and often, so often through our fathers. We give you all the glory for the ways that you save us by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. May we see the enemy and fight the enemy and win. In Jesus' name, amen.